Okay, firstly, true and false. The ransom price for our redemption was paid to God. False. Right, false. Just doesn't sound right. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it, it wasn't paid to Satan, that was right. that was our right. that's right. that's that's the the absolute here. If 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 there is a recipient of the price, it is God. Although we typically think of that that. The, the the language is more or less being metaphorical of the great cost, not so right. much a price that is right. paid to someone. Okay. Propitiation. Appeasement or satisfaction of God's wrath. Satisfaction of the wrath of God. Very good. Okay. And again, that's the that's the heart of substitutionary atonement. That's the one that's the hardest. For people to swallow out there that, that God is angry, and that in order for us to be rightly related to God, He had to pour out His wrath upon someone, that person being His Son. The act of reconciliation results in a change in God's disposition toward us. True. True. Yes. Yeah, remember there are some out there who think, no, it doesn't change anything. God just changes me. But actually, it does change God. He's no longer hostile towards us, and which is actually the greater concern. I mean, certainly we don't want to be hostile towards God, but the greater concern that we have is the fact that he was hostile towards us, and that's the, uh, that's the frightening thing. Which of the following biblical terms is closely associated with the idea of reconciliation? D. All of the above, correct. Yeah, every one of those really fits in uh, with uh, what occurs in reconciliation. Good. Okay, two topics tonight. First one will go fairly quickly here. Uh, what is it that gives efficacy to the atonement? Um, and then uh, uh, a larger question here, and that is... Uh, how, how extensive was the atonement? The, the extent of the atonement. Oh, you weren't here last week. Yeah. Where was I? Sixty-eight. Yes, 68. yes, it should. Yeah, it should be on page sixty-eight. I'll be. I'll, I'm going to have to be a walk on eggshells here with the extent of the atonement, as I understand, even within your own elder staff here, there's disagreement on on this question, the extent of the atonement. So. Um, I'll, I'll try and be as careful as I possibly can here, <laughs> but at some point, uh, elder staff. probably yeah, step. I know, that's well, do you call them pastoral staff? I mean, yeah. I, I didn't. I didn't know if if Pastor Brown was. Sort but of but when you say elder, pastor. that kind of singles out Larry from Kenny. So. <laughs> <laughs> Said differently. Hey, Rich. Okay, so. Speaking of elders. <laughs> <laughs> Old as the hills. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we started class tonight. There were only two of us here, and there were only two here at five after seven. And we figured it was just everybody's just trying to avoid this quiz. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is it really that bad? <laughs> what Doctor Cole just walked in before I did. So. <laughs> so, so. Must be the nice weather. Okay, so the efficacy of the atonement. What is it that makes it so valuable here? And so the question here is, what is it in Christ that gives his sacrifice 
the efficacy to satisfy God's holy demands in all of these areas, guilt, bondage, wrath, and enmity. What unifies it gives cohesion to the atonement, and the answer is simply his obedience, his human obedience. Paul speaks of it correctly as the act of obedience, where, whereby, as by one man sin, it is the, the, the one act of Christ uh, results in, in uh, salvation for the many. Okay? But even though there's a single act, there's really two dimensions of this one sustained act of obedience, and it's broken down here some, in, into what's often called the passive in active obedience of Christ. These terms have actually been a little bit of a problem because uh, because passive often carries the idea to a lot of people of just uh, Christ was simply resigned to what came to him or he was inactive, uh, the opposite of act, pa- passive is active. But actually, we've got a different word here, different root. Uh, the root here, passivus, is a Latin word that simply means capable of suffering. So, we talked about the impassibility of God. Uh, God is incapable intrinsically of suffering, and so what we have here is this word. Uh, uh, this word used again. We, it's the same one used the passion of Jesus Christ. Right? We talk about that's the suffering week, uh, the week of suffering. So here, what we talk about the passive obedience. What we mean here is the suffering obedience. This is what Anthony Hokema calls it, perhaps the most descriptive of the terms. Dr. McCune calls it the penal obedience, whereby he suffered the penalty uh, against sin. So this is the name given by theologians for Christ's obedience, whereby he suffered. The hands of man forfeited his life as a penal satisfaction for sin. And on the basis of this obedience, the penalties of the law incurred by the individual are paid by Christ. And by them, the believer is forgiven and pardoned. He was obedient to the point of death. He learned obedience from what he suffered. Okay? And so, what we find here, the law of God has two aspects. There's positive demands and penal sanctions. By his death, Jesus addresses the latter. Okay? So, uh, we have people who have failed to keep the law and have violated the law. I mean, you might say that there's two sides of the same coin, but in some ways they are separate. One is 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 an active disregard of the law, an active violation of the of the law, and 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 one is a failure uh, to uh, to keep it fully. And so when Christ comes here, he he takes the place of us. In, in taking the penalty that should have been ours for violating the law. Okay? So, uh, he bears in himself all of the penalties that we deserved due to sin, releasing us from our obligation to suffer personally for sin. But as we've, we've mentioned earlier, uh, the death of Christ in, is is not enough to save us, you know. And so, yeah. I mean, even as I say it, I almost cringe at my own words because it sounds like I'm saying that the work of Christ is not enough to save us. The work of Christ is enough to save us, but not the death alone. Okay. Also, we need the positive obedience of Christ imputed to our accounts as well, and that's the active obedience of Christ. They're all one act of obedience in the mind of God, but one is passive, suffering obedience, and this is the active obedience. Okay, so I say here, pardon and forgiveness alone don't qualify anyone to go to heaven. 
A mere release from punishment is not enough. Uh, the requirement for to get into heaven is perfect obedience. And I, 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 I quote here in principle Ecclesiastes 7.20, there's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. That's, that's, that's the requirement. Uh, not just that, you know, we've, we've done pretty well for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. The re- requirement is that they, we never have sinned, and everyone's blown that. And you can generally get most people to admit that. As noted earlier, the one who has been released from the penalty of the law is not on the same plane as the one who's kept the law perfectly. Although, I guess Bernie Sanders is trying to uh, change that, right? You know? <laughs> let the uh, let everybody vote, even if they're even if they're felons, right? But my, my example is going to go away here if uh, he gets his way. Uh, but the imputation of our sins to Christ is insufficient. The reciprocal imputation of positive rectitude is also necessary. We need His righteousness. Okay, so on the basis of Christ's perfect obedience to the law during his whole lifetime that merit accrues to the believer so that he is accepted as righteous and restored to favor with God um, you know sometimes you know sometimes we sort of glibly ask what can we do to get to heaven we can't do anything to get to heaven because uh, because you know heaven is not earned it's received well actually in some senses it is earned just we didn't earn it Christ earned it for us. I mean, there, it is a it is a merit based thing. How do you get into heaven on the merits of Christ? Because your merits aren't adequate. You do need merits. It's just that you can't produce them in yourselves. So justification then involves peace with God, access to God. By a single act of righteousness, we avoid condemnation and receive righteousness. Filthy garments are removed. Clean ones put on. We receive forgiveness, also an inheritance. Both sides of this uh, same coin are used here. Uh, you know, uh, perhaps I could put a jot down there: Philippians three, eight, and nine, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, having received uh, the, the 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 a righteousness that is not my own, the righteousness of Christ. And that's necessary in order for us to uh, be fitted. Uh, for heaven, so the the what makes the atonement effective is the fact that Christ was a perfectly obedient being, and and we were not. Okay, so the the perfect human here is what he was, and that's what gives the efficacy here to the atonement. Okay, usually don't have too much by way of of uh, debate on that point. Any questions on that? Well, the next point, we usually have a few more questions. So let's see if we can't uh, lay this out here in a way that's uh, effective and as uh, nonpartisan as I can make it here. <laughs> so that's just, I don't know if you were all here. I, I mentioned that I think even within your pastoral staff, there's not complete agreement on this. So I'll, I'll try and be careful. Okay. <laughs> so the question here, whether Christ's atoning work was a general provision or a particular accomplishment has been a matter of debate for centuries. I say good men differ on the issue, right? What is at debate here is not whether all men will be saved. No one who is orthodox says that, okay? I mean, there's some people out there that do 
think in those terms that they're wrong and and uh, orthodoxy is, is such that no one who is orthodox says that everyone will get into heaven. We've got a hell and there's a reason for that. Okay. In this sense, everyone who rejects universalism, the idea that everyone gets into heaven, recognizes some sort of limitation on the atonement of Christ. It doesn't actually save everybody. Okay. Uh, so, we, that, but that's not the question here. The real question here is the question, in question, is the design of the atonement. What did God intend for it to accomplish when he sends Jesus to die on the cross? Did he intend to save all and was foiled in that attempt? Did he attempt only to save some? Or did he make some sort of a general provision for everybody and then leave it up to everyone else, everyone to decide whether they want in? Okay. That's sort of the parameters of the question here. And so you end up with three options here. Some hold that the atonement was general in its intention, perhaps universal even, um, and provisional in its character. So Christ died in such a way that everyone could have gotten saved had they just had they decided to accept the gift so it's provisional in nature in that it actually does, Christ didn't actually save anyone on the cross he just made it possible for everyone to get saved and uh, people are saved iteratively within time when they believe for these the atonement is a perfect sacrifice with unlimited substitutionary potential. It renders all people savable. Okay? And here's where where it gets a little dicey here, and, and you're going to see the next one is pretty much the same, but it differs at this point here. The What limits the atonement, again, everybody has says there's some limitation on the atonement, the, the limit here is man's free will. Okay? Uh, so, so, so who decides uh, who God saves? Well, it ultimately comes down to us. You know, we decide. And any suggestion of limitation on God's side is summarily dismissed as a rejection of his infinite love. How could God do anything other than do as much as he possibly can for everybody? Many who hold this view deny personal election, but that's not a necessary corollary of this of this view, but many do. It's based, uh, um, uh, if they do see personal election, it's usually based on his advanced knowledge of the free acts of men, because m- mankind is the only limitation on the death of Christ. This is uh, the historical label most associated with this view is Arminianism. Okay, so this is the this is the, the, the view furthest down the line here. Okay. Secondly, then, this is what some will call four-and-a-half-point Calvinism or four-point Calvinism. It's sort of a... There's, there's more limitation than the first view, but we're still not saying that Christ only died for certain people. Okay. Some hold that the atonement is undefined in its intention, uh, what uh, uh, Amarode calls hypothetically universal. Uh, and the reason the word hypothetically is is used is because there's a realization that when Christ died on the cross, God knew who would be saved because election is 
in eternity past. So it's it's not as though God, you know, Jesus died on the cross. Well, I don't know who I'm dying for. I, I'm just dying in general. Uh, there was a realization of who, at least in the mind of God, the God the Father, as to who was who was going to be a recipient of this love. And so there wasn't any real contingency. Nonetheless, uh, as Amarod suggests, uh, perhaps Jesus didn't know in his humanity for whom he was dying. At least it's a possible suggestion. So in its etern- it, it is both provisional and redemptive. So when Christ died, he was providing something for everyone and redeeming his elect. In its eternal design, the atonement had unlimited redemptive potential. But the potential was already limited in eternity past by God's subsequent elective decree. Okay, so the limitation here is not man's free will. The limitation here is election. Nonetheless, when Jesus died on the cross, he was not self-consciously saying, I'm dying for him and him, but not for him and him. Uh, he was he was he was self-consciously offering a general an undefined uh, uh, sacrifice with unlimited potential. Uh, Moses Amarod, whose whose name is often associated with this theory, Amaraldianism. I don't know if that name rings a bell for anybody explains this paradox by arguing that while the Father knew for whom Christ died, Christ, in his canonic state, didn't know. He couldn't distinguish between those who would and who would not believe him. So, you know, we we talk about the fact that God vouchsafes information to the Son. Jesus, in his humanity, doesn't know, for instance, the time of his return, uh, this is another thing that Jesus didn't know. Jesus didn't know who he was dying for, and so he goes to the cross uh, without any uh, intention to, to distinguish here uh, 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 for whom he was dying and for whom he was not. Okay. As a result, he self-consciously died equally for all. But not everybody who holds this view takes takes that understanding of the of the Christology of of this view. So I, I don't want to I don't want to impugn uh, any everyone who holds this view. This is just one way of explaining how this could have been. Okay. Um, seminary we sort of provincially call that four and a half point Calvinism. Uh, that is, there's a there's there's a limitation to the atonement, and it's not. A limitation that's imposed by the free will of men. It's a limitation imposed by the electing work of God. Nonetheless, um, Christ self-consciously does something for everybody um, and is not discriminatory when he goes to the cross. That, that follow? Perhaps the hardest to understand, uh, but uh, it, has, it does, does have a fairly warm reception um, in but he still wouldn't world. know specifically, specific individuals. Yeah, well, at least Amarode said that. I don't. I don't know that everyone who holds this position says yeah. that. That that was Amarode's explanation, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's held by some, mm-hmm. but not by all, mm-hmm. who take this view. But the idea was, that, you know, when Christ, Christ, you know, Christ is God, so whatever He does has to be infinite. 
And so does he have to distinguish when he dies who he's dying for? Well, this view would say no, because he's really only making a provision. It is a it is an accomplishment for those for whom he you know, for for the elect, but and God knows this, uh, but Jesus Himself may not have known. I don't know if that follows. Okay, it's it's sort of a way to have a theodicy here, a defense of God. Uh, him not being discriminatory or partial um, and and yet retain some sense of free will and his sovereignty it, it's, it's trying to balance all of those things and juggle them all at the same time the last view here is what's sometimes called five point Calvinism or limited atonement particular redemption is what they those who hold to this view tend to like particular redemption why? Because they hold that the atonement is particular or definite in its intention and effectively redemptive in its character. Christ died only for those whom he elected. The limitation, or as proponents tend to use, they don't like that harsh word, uh, the particularity of the atonement, is established by God's prior decree to elect an eternity past. Okay? I gotta explain here what I mean by prior and and subsequent decree here in just a moment. But for now, it's it's that that in the ordering when 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 God says, okay, I'm going to enact a plan of redemption. Uh, the order is, you know, God elects and He determines who's going to be elect, and He sends Jesus to the cross to die for those people. Whereas the previous view says that God says, I'm, I'm, I, have a, I have a plan uh, to redeem people. I'm going to send Jesus to the cross to die. And then I'm going to elect people. Okay. Uh, and, and so when Christ dies of necessity, his death has to be broad, general, for anybody. And then God elects, at least in his mind, after he decrees to send Christ to the cross. Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> Okay, so in this case, the last, the, the five-point case, the atonement is actually substitutionary in its eternal design and thus attended for the benefit of the elect alone. So in some ways this is the cleanest, although in some, for some it's not very satisfactory because it seems to make God arbitrary, uh, discriminatory, prejudicial. He, he chooses to save some people and just snubs his nose at the rest. Okay, so there, there's what I mentioned here about this order of decrees. There, there's actually a long discussion here, but really the, the the point is is this: where where in this discussion do you see election, and where do you, in this in in this in this uh, on, on, in, in this diagram do you see uh, the atonement? And that's really the question in view. It, it, there's a complex discussion. I don't know that we need to have the whole discussion here. Um, if you really want to, you, we can. But that, that's really the question. In the mind of God, which came first? I'm going, I'm going to send Christ to die, and then I'm going to elect some people, or I'm going to elect some people, and then I'm going to send Christ to die. And it's, in some ways, it's, it's, a, it's a question that's very, rather difficult to ascertain. In fact, it's, a, it's an odd question in the first place, can we really predicate 
logical ordering in the thoughts of God. I mean, it, it, it actually, you know, treads in places where it's actually difficult to have the discussion here. Uh, but there is a sense in which we do recognize that God is a logical God. Um, and so it's, there is a sense that it's one or the other. Does, does, did, did God intend for Christ to go to the cross to die for everybody and then elect people? Or did he elect some people and then send Christ to the cross to die for them? And that's, that's really what the question is. Okay? So we haven't made a determination yet. <laughs> You're probably wondering where I'm leaning right now. I'm trying to keep that secret as long as I can here, but <laughs> it'll probably come out. But uh, but let's let's first make the case for a general or hypothetically universal atonement. So I'm I'm basically dismissing the Arminian view. Uh, I'm 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 hopeful that we don't have anyone here who's in that category. If we do, we can have the conversation. Uh, but. I think we're, we're probably all here at the table Calvinistic enough to say that God elects without any contribution from on our part. So God is the agent of election. He does not depend upon our decision-making to decide who he's going to elect. Uh, so the question then is, uh, did God elect first? Or did he send Christ to, to atone first? So the limitation is in God, uh, but at, at what level? Okay. So the, the case here for a general atonement, a hypothetically universal atonement, that Christ died without discrimination in the same way for everybody. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll use the same outline for both. I'm going to try and be as even-handed as possible. I'll give the arguments. They're going to have a lot of... Oh, you're going to see a lot of... I'm going to try and make the same arguments here. And then and then I'll actually give the answer that's given by the other side. Okay, so I'm going to try and do that evenly throughout here and then draw a conclusion at the end. So the case for a general atonement. First, there are a number of texts in the Bible that speak to the intention of atonement as extended to all, to the world, to everyone, to whomever. And I give a sampling of these below. I don't know if this is a comprehensive list, but it's a, it's a pretty substantial list. Isaiah 53, 6, The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John three sixteen, God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. John twelve thirty two. when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Second Corinthians 5, one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. First uh, Timothy 2, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He gave himself a ransom for all. Titus 2, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all. By the grace of God, he traced to death for everyone. Hebrews 2, 1 John 2, 2, he is a propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In Revelation 22, whoever is thirsty, let him come, whoever wishes, let him come take the free gift of the water of life. Okay, if we were to stop here, there 
you probably would have a, you know, you'd say, oh, you've made the case. So how do, how do, how do the five pointers respond to this? Well, they respond that the universal terms in view, all, every world, whoever, in every case is delimited, delimited by its context. So, for instance, Isaiah 53, the first one, he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, who's the us? Okay, so that, that then becomes the question. Is the us everybody on the planet? Or is that us, Isaiah and his readers and a, and a limited group who are, who are faithful? Well, it, it may not be quite as clear. Uh, John 1 and 1 John 2, 2, you know, the world, uh, for um, he, he, I think there's a fairly good case that can be made here that the world here is, is, is a contrast between in the Old Testament, Christ was concerned for his own, that is, Israelites. Uh, but now Christ comes and does something not only for Jews, Israelites, his own, but actually something that's expansive in value and has value for all kinds of people without discrimination. That is, so it includes Gentiles. So it's not so much the world in the sense of everybody on the planet, but rather the world in the sense of all kinds of people, not just Jews. Uh, you know, uh, same thing is true here. For instance, uh, Titus 2.11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all. Well, he's just gone through a list of you know, a list of different kinds of people, old men, young men, uh, old women, young women, rulers, uh, masters, slaves. And then he concludes by saying, hey, the, 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 the grace of God reaches all kinds of people. Uh, so, so, so don't, don't, don't be prejudicial against any one of these groups. You might not like men. You might not like masters. You might not like slaves. But realize that Christ's death, you know, crosses all of these lines. Okay, and so and so we could we could we could walk through this one by one. Uh, we won't we won't do that. But the advocates of a five point position would say here that every time you see all and world and whoever in this context, there is a delimiter within the context that says it's not everybody on the planet, but rather. A, a, a different kind, a, a narrower all, if I can put it that way. Okay. However, there are a couple of texts that seem to go further and suggest that Christ died expressly for unbelievers. There's two of them. These are probably the uh, strongest texts, if I can put that, put it this way. Hebrews 10.29, How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him? Okay, here, so here's a description of a person who has trampled the Son of God underfoot. He is, he is, he is reacting badly to the news of the death of Christ. He is he's causing trouble uh, for believers. He's he's in, in Hebrews. He's stomping away from the faith, and yet he's described here as someone who has been sanctified. Okay, so something the the blood did something for him, even though he's walking away. 
Same thing in Second Peter 1. There were also false prophets among the people. These are unbelievers that have weaseled into the church. There are false prophets among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you, they will secretly introduce, introduce heresy. Okay, so these, these, are, these are unbelievers. And deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. Okay, so the implication is when Christ died on the cross, he did something. He, he, he paid the price necessary for their redemption, even though they remain heretics, false prophets, uh, trample the Son of God underfoot. So how's, how do the, uh, the five pointers respond to this? Well, advocates here respond variously. They don't all describe, answer the same way. But usually, probably the majority response is that this was merely a false claim by the reprobates. If I can go to Second Peter 2, I think we have a pretty good case for this. Um, uh, as you work your way through chapter 1, for instance, uh, you find that there is a group of people uh, who who are, you know, and, and, and Peter is saying, this is how you can determine who is a false professor of the gospel and who is a true possessor of the gospel. It goes through this list, add your faith, virtue, knowledge, and temperance, and so on and so forth. If you do these things, he says, um, and, and these things are, you know, advancing, your, advancing in your sanctification, then you can have confidence that you are, in fact, a believer and an, and an entry will be paved into the kingdom. However, if you claim... <laughs> to be a believer, and those things are do not mark your life. Okay, you, You're not marked by faith and virtue and knowledge and temperance and so on and so forth. Then, he has a very there, he has some very harsh words for them. You know, you're, you're blind, which I, which I would understand as unregenerate. You, you've, you've, you have forgotten, and I, I think when I say that, see that word forgotten, it's not just, oh, I forgot Jesus died for me, but rather it's, it's an abandonment of Christ. You've abandoned Christ, and you are you are you are uh, you, you, you are blind. That is, you're unregenerate. Okay, so you're an apostate. So if you claim to be a follower of Christ, but don't advance in your sanctification, you're actually an apostate, and you're not going to have an entry into the kingdom. Okay, so that's that's the context here. And then we move to, to chapter two, and he says there are certain people among you. Who claim to be believers, but they're not. Okay, so uh, so when we get here to Second Peter two one, there's false prophets. They will they they claim to have been purchased by Jesus Christ, but but they haven't been. I think is Peter's message there. So so that's that's the answer there. I think we have to make the same argument in in Hebrews ten. Okay. Theologically, thirdly, a third argument here. Because God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, and because God is infinite in his love, it could not possibly have been an atonement for sin any other way than it, than one that is infinite. You know, God's infinite. Jesus is God. Therefore, when he died, it was an infinite death. So how could it possibly be delimited in any sense? Well, advocates of definite atonement demur with the observation that while God's love in himself is boundless, his love without is not remember we talked about this last semester here god's love within himself towards himself his intertrinitarian love is absolutely infinite in any sense but his his the extension of his love towards those who are outside him 
he he is sovereign over its expression. He does not have to love everyone equally. He does not have to love everyone infinitely. Okay. He could have done that, right? I mean, he's God. Had he wanted to, he could have loved everyone into heaven. Uh, but for some reason, he didn't. Now, there's any number of reasons that could be offered as to why he didn't uh, save everyone. But the fact is, it's within the within, within the prerogative of God to say, I'm going to elect whom I want and let go those whom I choose not to. And who are you, O oh man, to reply against God? So, you know, if I can use the language of Romans chapter 9. Okay, so there there is a sense in which you say, okay, the death of Christ is something that could have saved everyone. Why didn't it? Well, the, it, 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 there, there, there is a delimitation in God Himself uh, that uh, that uh, that can stand uh, to to say uh, He doesn't have to save everyone. He doesn't have to love everyone the same way. In fact, if you're going to have a problem with, in in some ways, the 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 the, uh, the objection actually backs up. Right? It's it's not. It's not. I'm. 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 I'm worried. I'm concerned that Jesus didn't die for everyone. I'm actually concerned that God didn't elect everyone. As as as. I mean, that's the first. That's the first tension that the Arminian faces. It's like God had to elect everybody. He had to because he loves everyone infinitely. He had to do everything he possibly to do for everyone. The only reason that. Arminians are not universalists is because they say, well, God loved people so much that he gave them a free choice to do whatever they wanted to do, and he really didn't know what was going to happen. Okay. So, I think this this, this argument probably is one of the weaker ones, even though it's you see it frequently. <clears throat> Number four, another argument uh, for a limitation, uh, for, for, for a universal atonement. Since God, by you of his nature, cannot extend any form of grace to anyone apart from propitiation, satisfaction of God's wrath, it must be concluded that the benefits of common grace find their ethical basis in the atonement as well. Okay, so remember we talked about common grace, uh, you know, the, the, the general benefits that God gives to all people everywhere, every day, the sun comes up, the, the rain comes down, and and we all benefit from these things, whether we're Christians or not Christians, and that we, we call that common grace because it's common to everyone. Well, Hebrew uh, Habakkuk one thirteen says that God cannot look with favor on any sinner. So we ask, how is it that God can send the sun on unbelievers and the rain? It, you know, it ought to be that you know when I go home and you know there's there's rain, you know it's. Kind of like you know how Charlie Brown was, you know, the rain's coming down on your house and not on anybody else's. Or conversely, you know, I'm going to have a picnic, so the sun shines at my house, but it's raining everywhere else because those those unbelievers, don't, you know, well, it doesn't work that way, right? God get God extends the benefits of common grace in common to all people. Okay, why does He do that? How does He do that? Well, the argument that's made here by, by the uh, the universal atonement is it has to be because Christ, when he died on the cross, died to secure those benefits of common grace for everybody. 
Okay, I think it was a very strong argument, and I and I and, and quite frankly, um, I, I I don't disagree with it. However, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 five point Calvinist responds here. Some some say there is no such thing as common grace. I don't buy that. Um, most admit that there is a universal element in the atonement, not just a redemptive one. So when Christ died to the cross, his intention was to save a body of people, the elect. But he had but he had multiple intentions when he went to the cross. He went to the cross to save his elect, but also to secure general benefits uh, for the for the whole creation. And he suffered what was necessary in order to secure those. Two more. Christ's death secures ultimately the redemption of the whole created realm. Okay, so the creation itself will be set free one day from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so the, the argument here is one day the whole world will be redeemed, including it, the, the dirt and the trees and the sky and, 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 and everything. It's all going to be redeemed. And so that's a universal thing that's going to happen. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that's going to just so, and that's, that's universal in its, in its extent. But advocates of a definite atonement concur, agree with that, but argue that redeeming creation is different in kind from redeeming persons. Okay, So the redeeming of creation is sort of a restoration of all things to conformity to God's eternal plan. Included in this is the destruction and punishment of the wicked. Okay, That's part of bringing all things... Where, where they ought to be. Uh, in, in the last day, all things will be brought, it, it, they, they will be brought from their broken state into conformity with God's expectation, including the unjust in hell. Okay? That, that's, that's part of everything being put right. Sin is punished. Okay? So, uh, so when we look at this, 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 this uh, restoration of the whole created order, we don't mean that everything is getting saved, per se, but rather that it's going to be brought back uh, to the way it ought to be, uh, including in its scope, doing judgment. Finally, a sixth argument here for a general atonement is practically that the general atonement allows for the free and sincere uh, offer of the gospel to the ungodly. Without it, for instance, you could never say, with any certainty at least, Christ died for you. So if you're going to go out and give the gospel to your neighbor or something, you you wouldn't be able to say Christ died for you because you don't really know whether he did or not. Okay. And advocates of definite atonement actually agree with that too. And they would say you need to be a little bit more careful what you say uh, when you're when you're when you're giving the gospel out. Okay, but definite atonement is no more a barrier to the gospel than definite election is, and most of us here hopefully uh, hold at least to that. That Christ, I mean, you, you don't normally go up to people. God elected you because <laughs> I, I don't know whether God elected you, but I don't have to make that part of my gospel presentation in order to have a have a have a have a an accurate uh, gospel presentation. Okay. I think that's a big pro for general atonement. Okay. The Great Commission. Okay. And and, and yeah, flesh that out. 
Well, I mean, why spend all this time in the Great Commission? It was given to the church if, you know, there is no, there is no hope at all for an unbeliever. Um, but, you know, I guess with the election, I, I guess with general atonement, though, I think that that's a, I think that's a good point about the Great Commission. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've I've sometimes seen the argument made um, that in order for you to sincerely give the offer of the gospel, Christ had to have died. You know, you can't tell somebody Christ died for you, and it might be wrong. Well, but at the same time, we have something like that goes on all the time in our in our world. Like, you know, Sears has a, a sale on refrigerators, right? Let's let's just. I know Sears is closed, but yeah, but it's, let's say Sears has a has a sale in refrigerators, okay? And they send out these advertisements all over Metro Detroit. Four million people get this advertisement, you know, refrigerators, seven hundred dollars. Okay, is it a sincere offer? <clears throat> is it a genuine offer? Yeah, we see. Yeah. Now, what happens if all seven million people, or four million people? Who want to buy this refrigerator? Say, I'm, I, I want one of those. What happens? It's not effective. Well, right. It, you know, there, there's no way they're going to do that because it's efficient. I mean, yeah. For right, but the, but the fact is, you can make the offer of of refrigerators to four million people without having four million refrigerators, right? Yeah. And so, and and, and so, so that's sort that's of that's why they put a disclaimer. Though. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> because if they don't, uh, or everybody does, yeah, while supplies last, or something like that, yeah. But 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 the fact is, not every ad has that, and you know, there, there's oftentimes you see advertisements all the time that say you know, it costs this much, and there's an assumption: not all four million people are going to come and buy this product. So I can put this advertisement out. Um, and, and it's fine. We will be fine putting this advertisement out because four million people aren't going to try and buy it. And so it, it's still a sincere offer. Come to Sears and buy a refrigerator. And whosoever, whoever wants one, let him come. Take the refrigerator with me. You know, so, so you, so you could make that, that kind of a claim as a, if I can say, as, as someone who holds definite atonement, you can make a sincere offer. Anyone who believes will have eternal life without saying that Christ died for every single one to make it possible for every single person here and to believe. I, I don't know that that necessarily follows, but if that makes know, sense. Getting back to your um, Sears offer, yeah. it's not a genuine offer, though, if you can't back it up. It's not? No. So it's not, a, it's not, Sears is not. Genuine or sincere in their offer. But you're saying though that you you only count on a certain percentage. So I would say without a disclaimer, it's not a genuine offer. Okay. So 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 advertisements are not no sincere. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, unless they unless they have a disclaimer. Yeah. <laughs> was that was that lease advertisements certainly aren't. <laughs> our, our analogy is starting to walk on all fours now. <laughs> But I would say it's a, it's a sincere offer. It's a it's a very sincere offer. You you come in, you, you we'll can sell make you. the offer. But if you don't qualify the offer, if you can't back it up, 
then it's not a genuine offer. Is this something that will put you out of business? What? If, if, if you made an offer that you could not back up and it would put you out of business, is that a genuine offer? I, I say no. I think most people would look at that and say that's a that's a that's a valid offer. It's a genuine offer, but there's a realization that not everybody not everybody's going to come and get it, right? Right. But if they did, could you back it up? So does it make it insincere or a false offer if I don't have refrigerators? I would say yes. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, analogies well, always fail to a certain point. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's but why this question is so it, difficult. It didn't give to, you a time frame for supplying those refrigerators. <laughs> What's that? It didn't give a time frame for right. supplying those refrigerators. I'll get you that fridge. It might take me a year. but Well, if everybody comes to get it and you don't have it, then it wasn't genuine. Well, I think it was genuine, but maybe not. Not well thought out, well, not well conceived, no. but it was you sure it's genuine. For, uh, well, you should make yeah. an offer that you can't back up. In fact, there's laws against it. I mean, you can't, you can't do that without disclaimers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I see ads all the time that don't have disclaimers. Well, again, they play the ads. We're not talking about playing the odds here, though. Right, you're not playing the odds here. But but the question is, is it, a, is it a sincere offer? If you believe, you will have eternal life. Yes. That's To me, that's a sincere offer. Yeah, and all who believe... And all who believe, do find they do yes, find they that they were included in the atonement. Um, and so, and so it's, it's, it's... I still think it can be a sincere offer, and I could... You know, I, I can I can say, you know, you know, Pete here is laying on his deathbed and he's a you know, uh, you know, an established unbeliever, he hates God. And I can say to him, if you believe, you'll have eternal life. That's true. And it's true mm-hmm. and it's sincere. Now, I I I mean I might be as I say that, I might say I really don't think there's much chance here because this this guy's been uh, you know opposed to Jesus from day day one. I I really don't think Christ died for him. I, I really don't think that he's one of the elect. Nonetheless, I can make a sincere offer to say if you if you believe, God will save you, and it's true, and it's and and uh, and, and without having to say, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say here Christ elected you. I think that would be a, a rather awkward thing to say at that point because I, I I don't know that. In fact, I you know at this point I have some real doubts. Or, but but I, yeah, I believe that you can make that offer and that's a genuine offer because you don't know. Right. You don't. Nor would you put a disclaimer on that and say only if you were elected though. Right. Yeah. I, <laughs> right. Uh, that's the only way you can be. Right. Right. I mean, I could I could but, put yeah I could uh, yeah go ahead. No no good yeah. But I mean, I mean, I could put it into my in my into my advertisement. If you believe, you can have eternal life. Asterisk, while supplies last. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's only forty-four thousand spots. But there, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's there's only so many spots left. I mean, you better you better act now, or you're toast. There's a realization that. I mean, I know that not everybody's All going to fulfill from before the foundation of the world. Yeah. So. 
Right. That, you know, if he's elect, he's going to be saved. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well, let's go to the next one because we're not going to get through it if we don't do this. So, so here's the opposite argument now. Here, here's the case for the definite atonement or limited atonement. And you're going to see a, a pretty much follow the same outline here. Many texts speak to atonement in less than definite or in limited terms. Isaiah 53, my righteous servant will justify many. He bore the sin of many. He will save his people from their sins. The blood of the covenant is poured out for the many. The son of man came to give his life a ransom for many. He loved his own and showed to them the full extent of his love by dying for them. Greater has love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. Okay, and so it sort of, you know, adds that, that quality here. You are my friends. I di- I'm dying for you. So what's the response to this? Well, advocates of a general atonement argue that statements affirming that Christ died for a specific group or specific individuals does not preclude the possibility that he died for everyone else too. Okay. You know, I I, I I might say, you know, I, I, I taught five people today. Well, that's true, but I also had a couple classes at the seminary where I taught some other people. Um, and so I actually, you know, taught quite a few more people than five people today. So saying that I taught five people does not mean I didn't teach other people in some other context. It's simply a statement that he did die for these people. However, there are, again, certain texts that go seem to go further to state or at least imply that Christ did not die for the non-elect or didn't die in the same way. John 2, 23 and 24, many saw the miraculous gifts that Jesus was doing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. Okay. So, so he, he actually withholds uh, his, his, his work on their behalf because he knew all men and would not entrust himself to some of them. John 10, the Lord, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. Okay, well, this might be the first category here. Just because he lays down his life for his sheep doesn't mean he didn't lay down his life for the goats. But he keeps going on and says this, I lay down my life for the sheep, and you do not believe because you aren't sheep. Okay, so he he goes on to say not just that Christ died for the sheep, but that the not sheep he didn't die for. John 17, 9, this is a particular argument that John Owen uses. I don't ask on behalf of the world, but only for those you have given to me, because they are yours. Okay, now he's talking about his intercessionary work, his work of mediation as the high priest. So he's talking about his high priestly prayer, as it's sometimes called. And so he says, when, when I get into heaven and I start praying, I am only going to pray for certain people. I'm going to pray not for the world. I'm only going to pray for the ones whom God has given me, because they're yours. Okay, so, uh, and the argument here is there's two aspects to the mediatorial work of Christ. He died for them. He intercedes for them. Now, this is not actually a reference to the dying part of the mediatory work of, of Christ, but to the intercessory work, 
But he says, as a priest, I'm only going to pray for certain people and other people, quite expressly, I'm not going to pray for them. Okay. Well, and which argues then that the whole of his mediatorial work should be regarded in this way. Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Note here that the analogy really breaks down quickly if Christ died for the church and for all other people in the same way. Because what's the, what's the implication then? Men love your wives and all the other women in the world too. Right? Okay. You're supposed to love your wives in precisely the same way that God loved the church. Okay. You love your wife exclusively, right? And so the implication is that Christ died for his church exclusively. Okay, so that's that's the implication here. And then First Timothy four ten, which is a verse that's sort of you know used by both sides here. The living God is the Savior of all men, but especially of believers. It's a fascinating verse here. Um how is it that he dies for everyone, but especially for certain people? Um, uh, the the understanding that most uh, who are who are five pointers uh, would be that Christ died to bring common grace, the benefits, general benefits to everyone, but specific benefits to his own. Okay, so what do we do with these? So advocates of a general atonement usually argue that the implications of the exclusion of these texts are not as clear as I've presented them here, and that the particularists make far too much of the analogies, making them walk on all fours. Okay. Thirdly here, so it's a little bit tight to follow this from here. It's a little more of a theological argument than a biblical one per se. Theologically, unlike the pecuniary satisfaction, what's that, right? What, tell, tell me what's a pecuniary satisfaction. Like it takes care of things, yeah. right? So, so if a, a pecuniary debt is is a is a fine, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I have a, if I have a pecuniary debt, then I can pay it by the payment of money. Mm-hmm. But a penal substitution involves a personal debt. Okay, so. You know, so 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 if, if you know, say say uh, Rich here has to go, you know, he's got a fine, and he's going to go to jail because he doesn't have two hundred dollars to pay his fine. He's going to spend the night in prison. And out of the goodness of my heart, I go go and say, hey, you know, I, I don't want to see Rich be in jail overnight. Here's two hundred dollars. Can 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 you let him out? Um, Rich could say, he's ticked at me right now. I don't want your money. I'm not going to take that money from you. And what would happen? They would say, he won't take it. He wants to spend the night here and we can't, we can't, and so you can give money all you want, but he won't, he won't accept it. He's, he's, he's bound and determined to spend the night here. Okay. Insurance Mr. Scott told him. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. But, okay, but here, here's the thing. What if it's a death penalty? Okay. Rich committed murder and, Let's say he doesn't live in Michigan, and there is a death penalty, and you know he's going to he's going to have to forfeit his life. Now, if in fact we lived in a government structure where substitutions could be made, you know, 
And I, that's that's the big if. I don't know that there's all that many cultures in which that's possible. But if we lived in that situation where a substitute could be offered for another, and I said, you know, I'm going to give up my life for rich, okay? And they, they take me and strap me down to the electric chair, put the electricity through me, and I die, okay? They would say to Rich, Rich, you go free. Snow Ritter here. He, he paid your penal debt. Not your pecuniary debt, but your penal debt. He substituted for you. And you could say, oh, I, I didn't want him to do that. Well, he did. And the law's been satisfied. And so we can't hold you any longer. We, we can't put you to death. We can't hold you. The, 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 the penal debt was paid. You go free. Whether, whether you want to or not, you're free because, because the debt has been paid. So, so, and, and that, and that's, and that, see, so, so the question here of when Christ dies on the cross, is he simply offering something? Here, here's something I'll do if you'll have it. Or is he dying for someone in terms of a penal substitution? And, and so the, 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 the argument that's made by the, by the, by the, the five pointer is that the only, uh, explanation for a truly substitutionary atonement has to be a, has to be a, a limited atonement. You cannot potentially substitute yourself. You could potentially give the money. If he'll have it, here's $200. But if I die, it, it, it's not something that can be, you know, brought back. No, he won't, t- won't take it. You know, here's your life back. Well, that doesn't work. You're dead. Okay. Um, and so, so advocates of the general atonement argue that this argument minimizes the role of personal faith as the means of salvation. And perhaps you thought that when I was going through, because you know, if he doesn't want, <laughs> if he doesn't want me to die for him, it sort of breaks down. He, he has no faith in me, if I can put it that way. So Christ's death on the cross is not ex opere operato; it just automatically does uh, accomplishes what it intends. But personal faith is necessary to the application of the benefits of his crosswork. Okay? Fourth argument here from the limited atonement folk. The verbs of atonement, when l- used in scripture, are always cast in terms of accomplishment. There's no syntactical room for potential substitution, potential expiation, potential propitiation, etc., etc. Okay? So the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, Let's, let's go to the second one. John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay? If, if that world means everybody on the planet, okay, then God took away the sins of the world. Now, let me ask you a question. On what ground then can anyone be punished further? If Christ took them all away. Well, the four-point Calvinist says, well, he offered to take them away. But that's not what the verse says. The verse says he took them away. Not that he potentially took them away or offered to take them away, but that he took them away. So expiation occurred. Uh, by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. Okay, well, if he tasted death for everyone, he substituted himself for everyone on the planet then therefore, there's no possible way that anyone can die themselves. That would be sometimes called double jeopardy. It's the double jeopardy argument. Two persons can't die for the same crime. 
If Christ died for the crime, then there's no possible way in the divine order where another person can pay for the same crime. Okay, same with, same with the other verses here. So, if indeed Christ truly removed the guilt of all people, carried all of their iniquities on themselves, satisfied God's wrath against them, substituted his life for theirs, then it would be impossible for God then to justly require them to pour then to pour his wrath upon them at the last day. If he did, then God would be guilty of imposing double jeopardy, punish two people for the same crime. In view of this observation, we have to conclude that Christ did not expiate the guilt of the non-elect. He did not propitiate God's wrath against them. He did not bear God's wrath against them because God's still angry with them and sends them to hell, and so on and so forth. Advocates of a general atonement argue that this argument does not follow. Christ did not accomplish atonement on the cross, but rather provided it. There's always a possibility that what is provided may be rejected or not implied. And double jeopardy is just a Western idea. It's not really something that's necessary to God's order. It's something that's, you know, part of, of English jurisprudence. Uh, but we should not apply that to God. That's, it's unfair to do that. Final argument here. The unity of God's triune purpose in atonement suggests that the scope of the Father's electing work, the Son's atoning work, and the Spirit's regenerating work should be the same. Okay, so the idea that God elected, the Father elected this block of people, and the Holy Spirit regenerated this block of people, does not comport with the idea that Jesus died for everybody. Okay. It, 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 would, it would only make sense that if the Trinity is in harmony with one with each other, the Father elected this block, Jesus died for this block, and the Holy Spirit regenerated this block. Okay. Advocates of a general atonement re- respond that this argument is logical only, and that Christ's atoning work, being logically prior, could be more expansive than the other two. Okay. What's the conclusion? Well, good men differ on the issue. We'll start, we'll start with that, yeah. and uh, and undoubtedly we'll un, will continue to do so until the day Christ returns. Now, I'll, I'll I'll tip my hand here if you haven't picked it up already. While I personally find the arguments for a definite atonement to be more compelling than those for a general atonement. I grieve that this issue, which has almost no practical implications for the mission of the church continues to eclipse much more vital issues related to Christ's atonement, such as its nature and the categories, topics that are bristling with implications for the church. So, if I could, if I tried to, tried to be as careful as possible with this and come to the conclusion that, practically speaking, I don't know that it makes a bit of difference. We're all doing the same things. We're all going out and preaching the gospel to everyone. We are calling upon everyone to to taste of the of the grace of God and to and to and to enjoy His gifts. Um, and 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 in 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 the in the practical sense, I don't know that if you and I differ, for instance, on this point, that it's going to make a bit of difference how we're going to be interacting with the world, what we're going to be doing with respect to the gospel. And with respect to the the mission of the church, there is a right and wrong here. I mean, 
somebody's got to be right. Some, well, some, uh, we could all be wrong. You know, I suppose that's an option too. We could all be wrong. One of us could be right. One of us could be wrong. Um, we can't both be right. But at the end of the day, I think that probably too much press time has been given to this question that it merits. So if I can conclude that way, uh, that's what I'll do. Thoughts, questions, comments? I mean, elections are biblical. Right. He elected before pressure in the world um, but I will just say in light of God's love and in you know these verses that we went through um, including everyone in it I, there's no way we can try to understand the mind of God and he's True. perfectly just in whatever he does so yeah. I mean if, if you know uh, you know you're right then he's he's perfectly just I just don't see it quite to that degree right, right now. Yeah. But and that's fair. I mean, you cannot understand how God, you know, would act with an election. I don't even try to understand. That's one thing I never tried to really understand. Yeah. It's biblical. Um, yeah, limited election is is hard for us. But yeah. I think for most most I think most I think as you've said here. We've all embraced it. We don't call it limited election because it because mm-hmm. it sounds that sounds pejorative. We say unconditional election or sovereign election or something like that. Um, I guess at the end of the day, God's electing love is limited. Does His does Christ's uh, saving love? Why, why does that have to be more expansive than the Father's electing love? And I, I, I guess I come down to the thing. I, I don't see why one would have, one would have to be expansive, and the, while the other could be limited. Seems like both of them could could go either way, and should go the same way. But if, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. but like I say, within your own within your own pastoral staff, there's a. There's there's debate on this issue, so you can, you can keep you can keep this one going long after I leave. I'll to stir it up at our next meeting. <laughs> I'm sure those cards will come out real quick. <laughs> Actually, I think both. Of them, yeah, I mean, just knowing them, I, I don't think. I think I think I know who which who they are, and I and I and I think I know which, where they stand too, without having the conversation with them. <laughs> Uh, but didn't you good. say though that it uh, not only affected the elect, but it also affected the whole creation in the long run? That it, we're, we're because of him, we're going to have new heaven and new earth. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. The, the death of Christ has—I think it has at least—it has multiplied intentions. It, it it saves, it secures common grace. It secures the restoration of all things to the way they are supposed to be. So in some sense, I think everyone has to say there's something universal about what God, what Christ did. It fixes everything. doesn't save everyone, but it fixes everything. It brings it back to the way God intends it to be. Um, and so, so there, there are, there are universal elements.
there are particular elements, and the question is how do we sort them out? Yeah. You know, verse with. Go ahead, Paul. I'm sorry. Were you going to say something? No, I was going to say oh, something. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, no, it was, it's, on, it's switching a little bit, so no. go ahead. Finish it. I was just going to say, you know, with you know, uh, Jacob, I love Esau. I hated. You know, I mean, God. You know, providence being able to see, um, it just, it's just hard to believe that, um, that, uh, you know, he just, he, he hated them. There, well, there's, yeah, there's I don't know if it's so much an animus there. It's, I think it's, 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 it's probably a more of a choice kind of thing. It's not as though he just despises him is the point, but rather he elected one and didn't elect the other. Probably the implication, and then you know earlier on you had said that uh, this was the the only plan that would work, the only efficient plan, right? Mm-hmm. Right, but so when people say, "Well, God chose everybody," could well maybe not. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe they because if if this is the only or the best way men can be saved then the, the what if doesn't really right and, and Romans 9 seems to bear that out right because Romans 9 says that what if God wanting to make his holiness justice and wrath known basically condemns these these people can we reply to him and say that's wrong well no and what if, on the other hand, he has mercy on these vessels of mercy? Can we say that that's unjust? No, no, no. God had God had a rather intricate master plan here, whereby we know God's holiness, His justice, these attributes of God better for having seen the negative side of them. Whereas, if we'd only seen the positive side of them, we wouldn't really understand to the extent that we do now. What justice and holiness mean? I think. In fact, you asked me. Uh, um, the, uh, I'm trying to think of the verses where uh, the individual is given every opportunity to accept Christ, but turns away and does not accept them. Man, I should have my Bible. Um, if you had asked me that question, Pete, uh, our ordination uh, council. Uh, Trying to remember. I think that's it. Yeah. He's not listening. <laughs> he's, he's, he's I'll let you take it from here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I threw you under the bus here. Oh, you did? Yeah, I did. <laughs> in fact, uh, Rich has already said he's planning to bring this up in the uh, no, we're gonna, <laughs> I told him the cards are going to get on the table. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna, we got to talk about the obscenity of Thomas. And I said, oh, I'm going to walk on eggshells because I think in yes. your pastoral staff there's actually not even complete agreement yeah, on this one. So, so I tried to be even-handed, but... <laughs> Is four and a half good enough for you? <laughs> I don't know. He's not grading on the curve, so... <laughs> so I, you, I was going to actually ask you a question about that four and a half, because you had mentioned something, I thought. Right. So you're saying that God elected after then Christ died? Right. Okay. So... 
yeah, when, when I say four-point Calvinist, uh, what, what you're basically saying, I don't believe in limited atonement. It's, right. On that point, I say I don't believe in limited atonement. Mm-hmm. That is, the only limitation is me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the five-point position is the only limitation is God's electing love in eternity past. Mm-hmm. Okay. The middle position is that there is a limitation the limit, the limitation is on God's, is God's election, but that election actually takes place after the atonement in the mind of God, and so therefore does not affect the actual accomplishment of atonement. 